Good evening. I greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here together. I want to express appreciation for your participation in the services so far this week. You're an easy bunch to share too. I find that in some churches it's I feel kind of like I'm speaking into a echo chamber or something like that. I don't see a lot of participation, but you are here with us, and I appreciate that. You make it easier that way. title of this evening's message in our Walking Together series is Walking Calmly, and the subtitle would be Emotional Freedom in Relationships. It has to do with what role our emotion plays in our relationships and how some negative emotion can can really damage relationship and how we can better overcome those negative emotion. Thank you. I was trying to contemplate a bit over the last day or two what would be a good way for you all to respond to the message, and uh, I'd like to try something. Um, we as Mennonite congregations are pretty laid back in our responses during the service, and we are slow to show emotion. We're pretty quiet, and that's not entirely bad. I can certainly, you can overdo the other. But what I'd like to try tonight is if you, since this is on emotion, is if you are feeling is blessed by a certain thing that is said or some concept or, or you want to praise the Lord for it, you could say that out loud. Like, praise the Lord or amen or some other suitable uh, verbal response. So, feel free. I will not be offended if you don't, but... Um, it will bless me if you do. You'll encourage the the teacher up front here. Okay, walking calmly is our message title. Back in the early 80s, I was attending a Bible school in Arkansas, and I learned to know a, a girl called Emily. And I don't think there's any probably any danger of you knowing who that was. But Emily um, was a very emotional girl. And I I couldn't believe it, but every time I saw her, she was crying. She wasn't unhappy. She was happy. I'm pretty sure she was happy. She may have sometimes been unhappy, but she just cried. And the term, the little more modern term for that is to emote. That is actually a verb now. It's not just... A noun or whatever. It's, it's, uh, you can emote and you can emote, of course, in very much, in a variety of ways. But Emily was always emoting. And she cried when she was happy. She cried when she talked with friends. You just expected Emily to emote. That was Emily. Emily wore her feelings on her sleeve. And I would venture to say that in this in this room, there would be quite a variation as to um, how many of you express your emotion. 
in a visible way. All of you have emotion. All of you are feeling emotion. Um, but it, the expressions, of course, are different. And God created us to be emotional beings. Emotions are God-given. I wish you would imagine with me a life without emotion. It would be just about like a relationship with a computer, for instance, or your GPS as you're going down the road. You know, like turn right, you know, next stop, you know, just kind of, you know. The neat thing about that is whenever I don't do what the GPS says, (laughs) our relationship remains the same. I'm sometimes still afraid of offending the thing, but it just doesn't get offended very easily. Emotion can rule our lives or inform our lives. I want you to think about that a bit. There's two things that emotion can do for us. They can rule our lives or they can inform our lives. We have some choices that we can make in these issues as relating to emotion. Someone has used the the uh, illustration of color to show what emotion is. Emotion adds color to life and relationships. And if you think about it, we use terms of color to describe emotion. Uh, more emotion there is in our lives, the more the intense, more intense the color is. From almost no color to intense rainbow-like spectrums. We are blue when we're down and out. We're green with envy. We see red when we're angry. All of these would be colors that would express different emotions. And those, of course, could be blended into a whole lot of variety of emotions. I'm told there are, I believe, eight basic emotions that are recognized and then combinations of those. We won't go into those. Many of us as Christians can seem to have our lives regulated by our emotion. And that is where it really impacts relationships. If we feel upbeat today, the Lord is good. The Christian life is good. Marriage is good. We're excited about the Lord. If we're having an emotionally down day to day, everything is bad. You've heard of throwing in the towel. It's a term that I think comes from the boxing world. When you give up, you throw in the towel. Um, I'd like to take it one step further. I felt like crawling in a hole and throwing the towel back out of the hole. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Amen. <laughs> this can be a very exciting way to live, but it's not very stable. And it can be a disaster for relationships. Um, and God commands us to live in peace and harmony with each other. And sometimes these emotional outbursts can be a real stumbling block to relationships. Emotion can be looked at somewhat negatively, and I I think we as Mennonites have typically kind of tried to downplay emotion, and we're reacting in some degree to what we would have called maybe the Pentecostal or Holy Rollers, as they were called at one point. They would roll around on the floor and laugh under supposedly the influence of the Holy Spirit and that kind of thing. 
And so maybe we've gone a little bit more to the black and white side of things. Um, there is emotion in our relationship with the Lord. There must be. There will be. Billy Graham said that emotion cannot be cut out of life. No intelligent person would think of saying, let's do away with all emotion. Some critics are suspicious of any conversion that does not take place in a refrigerator. There are many dangers in false emotionalism, but that does not rule out true emotion and depth of feeling. Emotion may vary in religious experience. Some people are stoical and others are demonstrative, but the feeling will be there. There is going to be a tug at the heart. Are there consequences for stifling our emotion? Yes, there are. And I think I've, I've personally reaped some of those. I brought up in a family where you were not expected to be overly emotional. You were expected to, you know, sit down, shut up. Okay, you're not to be doing all this stuff. But then when emotion in our spiritual walk is gone, we tend to lose interest in God's work. It becomes a totally mechanical thing and the excitement is gone. We tend to withdraw from intimacy with God. We tend to lose brotherly affection for the family of God. We lose the godly emotions that cause us to show mercy and compassion to others. Our relationships can become drab and unexciting, or black and white, if you will. So first of all, I'd like to say that emotions are godly. We often think of God as an unchanging, grand, and majestic God. We, may, we are made in the image of God and are taught that we need to take on the characteristics of God. We need to be dignified as He is dignified. We need to be holy as He is holy. We need to be loving and honorable and pure as He is. Many of us have grown up in settings where we were ta- taught to be reserved and modest. And I, I certainly admire that quality to a large degree. Do we realize that God also is a God with emotion? Anger can be a very destructive emotion if not properly controlled. Did you know that God gets angry? The psalmist says, God is a righteous judge and God, a God who expresses his wrath every day. God is angry with the wicked every day. He's passionate in his anger. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Who can stand against his fierce wrath? The writers in Scripture paint God as with word pictures of the anger of God and show it expressed in lightning and fierce thunderstorms. On the other side, God is also a tender, sympathetic, and compassionate God. If you look at Psalm 103, it says, As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. God has compassion, and I'm so glad that he does have compassion on us. Jesus showed us some of the tender side of God when he interacted with people during his ministry. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. When he was looking out over Jerusalem, he wept, the scripture says. God also delights in his people. Psalm 18 says, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. 
He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I see a God who can be angry at the wicked, angry at sin. And I see a God who can be compassionate to those he wants to be compassionate to. I see a God who delights in his people, who is just as pleased as a grandfather is when he looks at his grandchildren or children. And he is delighted. He is absolutely tickled pink to see that things are going well. God is a God of emotion. That means that emotion is godly. Two important misconceptions that I want to get out of the way before we go into the, some of the areas that emotion affects relationships. Two important misconceptions. The first one is that if I feel something, it must be true. Emotions are very deceptive because they can be so strong. We just feel it. I mean, we feel it all the way down to our tippy toes or or somebody said we get a liver quiver. It just it just deep emotion and we we this must be true because I feel it. I can feel it. The world will tell us to follow our heart, but doesn't tell us where that will lead us. Proverbs, however, says he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Many of us think that if I feel unloved, I must be unloved. Is that true? No, it's not true. If I'm feeling worthless, I must be worthless. No, absolutely not true. If I feel God has deserted me, then what's the use of praying? If I feel like life is hopeless, then it must be. The world teaches us that our feelings are the truth. If you feel in love, you should get married. If you feel out of love, you should get a divorce. What is missing in this equation is what the truth really is. The truth and emotion are not always good partners. Truth and emotion can be widely different. We cannot always trust our emotions. You could say amen to that. We can't always trust our emotion. Sometimes they are wildly wrong. We must be willing to reject feelings that don't match up with the truth. Truth is objective and never changes. If it's biblical, it is true regardless of how we feel about it. Feelings and emotion are highly subjective. They can change even with the weather or hormone changes in our bodies. Truth is not truth only if I feel it. The second misconception that needs to be, uh, should be talked about is that I can't, I can't control my emotions. I think that many of us have expressed that to one degree or other. Um, and to some degree, emotion can be a response, a natural response to hurt, maybe. I may be angry if I'm hurt. Uh, fear may be a response to the unknown. And sometimes there's a medical condition that is driving our emotional responses, and we need to understand it. But I can choose to dwell on that feeling or not. That's where it comes in. For instance, the, the, the emotion of anger. There's a big debate 
on anger. Is it in fact uh, wrong? Is it is it in fact a uh, uh, something that I can control? Is it something I have a choice in? And that could be debated at some length. But what I'm what I'm proposing here this evening is that we can choose then whether we will continue to foster the conditions in which that emotion becomes present. We can choose if we're going to dwell on it. We can choose whether we're going to continue to go there or whether we're going to reject that. That is where our choice comes in. What is the greatest source book of truth? It's obviously the Bible. I may be feeling that God doesn't love me anymore because I've messed things up once more. Is that true? No. How do I know if that emotion is based on truth? How can I gauge what I'm feeling as to its veracity? I can go to Scripture and find passages that tell of God's ongoing love for me. As in 1 John 4, verse 9, And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. That He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I may have struggles with worry and feelings of anxiety. And there are choices I can make to take control of these strong emotions. And one of those choices would be found in Philippians 4 where it says to to think on those things that are just, pure, lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. The thoughts that we have, the thoughts that we nurture, the thoughts that we harbor um, become our emotion many times. And prayer is also helpful. Focusing on God when we're struggling with strong emotion. When we're angry at our hurts, God is allowing this. When we're sorrowful and experiencing loss, God is still in charge. When we're experiencing elation, God has allowed this good thing to happen to us and we should praise Him. We can make so many excuses for our emotional responses and carry on with them. I can't help the way I feel is not a good response. We can choose to dwell on the emotion or we can choose to turn our mind toward God. And sometimes it it will take the, the help of some godly counselors to help us with our emotion. The principle to tonight's um, walking calmly with each other is found in the following. Our emotions should be anchored in our relationship with God. You're going to see that throughout the rest of the evening. And I choose to illustrate that with an anchor in the God circle and a line going out to self. Our emotion whether it's good or bad or strong or weak, needs to be anchored in our relationship with God. God is the steady part there. God is the absolute center of calm and truth. Everything is centered in God. 
And as our relationship with God is strong, we are able to reference God in the middle of tumultuous experiences. He becomes our fulcrum point. He is unchanging. His attributes, when manifested in our lives, provide a healthy reference for our feelings. He is our security. He is absolute truth. He is absolutely reliable and strong enough to provide the stability we need in often emotionally charged relationships. So we're going to be stressing this central truth to tonight's teaching that our relationships to God needs to be an anchor for our emotion. And we're going to be looking at, at five different emotions that, that inhibit good relationships and, and how an, an anchoring in God can help cure those. We're going to begin then with a very common emotion, and that is the emotion of fear. Fear is God-given as an emotion that something is out of whack. It's, a, it's designed to keep us from danger, to make us alert. When we experience fear, the emotion fear, our heart rate goes up, our awareness becomes very acute, and it's a design that God has that, that there's danger out there. He wants us to experience that. But fear out of place, fear in an uncontrolled manner, is keeping us from many meaningful relationships and opportunities. It's often the primary emotion behind many other destructive emotions. What do we fear? We fear things we don't understand. We fear death because it is foreign to us. We fear relationships because they are unpredictable. Is that amen? That can be very much that way. We fear those relationships because it's more than us involved there, right? They can be very unpredictable. We fear flying because we don't have control over what happens to us on the airplane. God wants us to trust Him, that He is in control, that He loves us. The fear emotion is a liar in many cases. Fear is a liar. It has lies that it tells us. Fear says, I am the only one that is struggling. You get in a relationship and you think, I'm the only one. Look, at everybody else is fine. Everybody else is doing well. I'm the only one that's struggling. In that way, fear makes us lonely. Fear says if people would know me, they would reject me. If I expose myself, if I, if I speak, if I try to develop a close relationship, I'm going to become exposed and people will reject me. That's what fear says. Fear says uh, they will reject me. Some will, God will not. Our security and our peace needs to come from our relationship with God. People are drawn to a person who is at peace in a strong relationship to God. Fear says, if I keep things the same, I'm safe. That's a lie. The only security is in a strong relationship with God. Fear keeps us in a rut. Fear says, if I ignore and injustice done to me, it will go away. I don't want to stir things up by confronting someone who has hurt me. 
I won't ask for a show of hands of how many have had that fear. I have. I don't want to stir anything up. I was way wrong and I should be saying something, but I'm not going to. I'm afraid of what I'm going to get if I confront someone. That is fear, and that's a liar. The Scriptures ask us to to confront in, in, in some circumstances. Fear says, if I give things to God, my life will be out of control. The answer is that my life is so much better. His control of my life is so much better than what I ever could do. What are some of the deadly consequences of fear, the fear emotion, as far as relationships go? Fear paralyzes. Fear causes us to hide. Fear prevents many beautiful relationships from developing and flourishing. And fear holds us in a self-protection mode and keeps us running from love, intimacy, close friendships, and authentic relationships with everyone, including God. And fear is deadly when it comes to relationships. The answer to fear is to anchor our relationship more strongly to God. Why? Because God's love will permeate our lives. The antidote to fear could be found in John, 1 John 4, 17 and 18. And I want to read it tonight from the message, paraphrase. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way love has the run of the house because it becomes at home and mature in us so that we're free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment is one not yet fully formed in love. How do we get rid of fear? It's kind of like somebody asks you, how do you get rid of air in a glass? How do you get rid of air in a glass? You fill it with water. If you were to try to suck the air out of it, it would just, it would collapse the glass. But if you fill it up with water, the, the air just moves up and is leaves. And brothers and sisters, receiving God's love into your heart banishes fear. It's just like water coming down into, into your, into that glass as it comes down in there. The more we allow God's love to come into our hearts and into our lives, the more it comes in there, it just rises up and it displaces the fear. Amen? Yes, it does. I've experienced that. I've experienced that. It, it, it is, it is, it, I must receive God's love. I must allow God's love to just permeate my life. And one of the ways I, I have done that in the past is just to sit in, in God's presence and say, thank you, God. You love me so much. And just sit there and allow his love just to, to come into my heart and reassure my heart. And then what it does is it, it just pushes that fear right out. God will never reject us, right? God will never throw us aside. God, God, God loves us so much. And that fear that's there, the fear of what we can't control, the fear of rejection, whatever fear it may be that is hindering us. 
it, it can be displaced with God's love coming down into our hearts. When our relationship is firmly anchored in God, we can refute the negative emotion of fear that binds us and inhibits our relationships. Fear and love do not coexist. One will displace the other. The second negative emotion that we want to look at tonight is that of jealousy. Jealousy is a very negative emotion related to in relation to relationships. Jealousy could be defined as resentment towards someone's successes, achievements, advantages in life, or relationships. It's a resentment toward others who we perceive to be more successful, greater achievements, greater advantages in life, or in relationships. Jealousy says that we deserve more than we have or more than others have. It focuses on ourselves and others in a competitive light rather than what God thinks of us. Jealousy causes us to constantly compare ourselves to others around us. What jealousy does is when I walk into the room, I immediately start comparing myself with others. And you know what? You're going to lose. There's always somebody who looks better. There's always someone who feels better. There's always someone who smells better. There's always someone who drives a nicer car, has a nicer house, or a nicer family. We're going to lose that game as we walk in there and compare ourselves with people in the room. We are going to lose. That is an emotion that is so destructive when we experience that jealousy at what someone else has. And, and, and uh, you know, it brought on the first murder, right? We know that. It brought on that first murder when Cain killed his brother Abel. He was jealous. He was jealous of Abel. That's what, what, what brought it on. God was pleased with Abel's offering and not Cain's, and God was patient with Cain and told him what he could do to be pleasing to him, but jealousy had reared its ugly head. God loves Abel more than me. He must. God, Abel is better than I am. Abel is trying to show me up. I can never please God or be good enough for God, so he killed his brother Abel in a rage. That's jealousy. Jealousy is an emotional liar. Let me give you some lies that jealousy says. Jealousy says we are not worthy or loved. Is that true? No. That's not true. We, God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to die for us. We are loved. Jealousy says we can never measure up. We don't have to. Our value comes from God. Our value comes from God and He is the one we're concerned about. Anchoring our relationship in God helps to overcome the jealousy emotion. What is the antidote for jealousy? Okay, we are focusing on God. Our relationship is anchored on God. What characteristic in God are we focusing on? It's His faithfulness. God is absolutely faithful. The, the characteristic of God that, that is the antidote for 
Jealousy is God's faithfulness. Jealousy cannot trust. It's a lack of trust. Cannot trust others. Cannot trust God. Cannot trust ourselves. But as we commit our lives to God, we can absolutely trust Him because He is faithful. We can trust the hand of God in our lives. His plan is the best for us. He knows what He's doing and He's doing it for our good. If I walk into the room and I'm constantly comparing myself with others, is my focus on God? No, it's not. It's on myself. How do I compare with someone else? That's not important. We shouldn't always be comparing ourselves with others, should we? Scripture says as much. We're not wise when we do that. We need to, again, focus our our security in, on God. And that that helps dispel this jealousy bit. We don't have to perform. We don't have to have the best stuff. We don't have to be the best looking. We don't because God is love. God doesn't care about that stuff. The third emotion that we want to look at tonight is that of lust. I don't know how many of you think of lust as an emotion. It is an emotion. Lust is an emotion. Lust is any intense desire or craving for self-gratification. Unhealthy desires and the giving into these desires is the root of lust. This uncontrolled desire of any kind is lust. Lust for material things. The Bible talks about that. There is a lust of power. There is the lust of money. There is the lust of, for fame. There is the lust for someone else's possessions. There is the lust for some, another person for sexual gratification. The root of lust is based in selfishness and the feeding of our flesh. We misinterpret the temporary fulfillment we receive for the, from the forbidden passion for soul satisfaction. God desires for us to have nothing greater in our hearts than Him. When we choose other things or people over God, our love is displaced and the flow of Christ's love doesn't easily move through us. To grow beyond lust and conquer it, we have, we have to be sick and tired of the outcome, which is emptiness, loneliness, depression, shame, guilt, and un- unforgiveness, among others. Until we are tired of reaping these outcomes and, and ready and willing to fill ourselves with more of God, we won't change. People feel that they can hide their lust from others. And they can, but God sees. It takes a strong, healthy relationship with God to break the chains of lust. Lust is the grandmother of death. James 1 says, Lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. We know the terrible consequences of lust in the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. How many relationships were destroyed? What pain and destruction was left in the wake of man after God's own, after a man of God's own heart who gave in to the deadly emotion of lust? He killed Goliath but was overcome by lust and he and his family and all of Israel paid a terrible price. The emotion of lust is a liar. Lie number one, all of my feelings are real and true. These feelings that I have, they're really true. 
Oh, these feelings. Oh, I have intense love. That's a lie. We feel that we can't live with whatever we are lusting for. The pleasure center in our brain is craving what we have learned to desire. It's like an addiction. These desires will override our logic, morals, and boundaries. What I really need is to have God as my desire and to have His Spirit take charge of my life. Galatians 5 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. The second lie that lust says is, if I hide it, I am safe. This illicit desire, if I hide it, if I cover it up, I'll be safe. Self-deception is a big part of the addiction cycle. We can rationalize it, but it's there. It's, it, it is still there and will come out. Freedom can come as we're willing to expose our struggles to someone safe, someone grounded in God's word and truth. Lie number three, what I crave and what I desire will satisfy my deepest needs. That's not true. The things I'm lusting for will not satisfy my deepest needs. No object, no person, no relationship, no material thing can ever satisfy you the way that God will satisfy you. You may get a temporary satisfaction, then you're left with shame, guilt, and depression. What's the solution to this negative emotion of lust? It's to move from the temporary satisfaction of the cravings of the brain and body and fill the desires and fulfill the desires of the spirit and the deeper yearning of the soul. Of course, repentance is involved, admitting, exposing, and turning from, and setting boundaries in your relationships. Again, the key is to anchor our relationship in God. He is the real satisfaction for our needs and desires. It's God. He is the provider for all of our needs. Constantly look to God to provide all we need. Submit to His working in our lives. Set yourself apart for God. Set God before you all the time. Our emotion can be anchored in a deep and satisfying relationship with God. The fourth emotion that we want to look at tonight is that of shame. Shame is the painful feeling arising from consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, or ridiculous that I or someone else has done. It was given by God. Shame is a God-given emotion to let us know that we have done something wrong. Adam and Eve experienced this emotion when they committed sin in the garden. At the root of shame is a sense of self-loathing. It comes down to a message that we have told ourselves that something about us is not okay. When shame becomes a problem is when it is misplaced and doesn't leave when our sin is repented of. Shame is God-given. It's, it's, like, it's like the feeling you have when you touch a hot oven and something is very, very wrong. You experience that shame, that emotion of shame. Something is very, very wrong. What should it be our response as a Christian when we first feel shame? We should repent. 
We should turn from. That's that's the command. Unfortunately, shame. Devil, the devil would like to use shame to continue on in our lives as a false emotion. An emotion that continues on even though we have repented and even though God has in fact forgiven us. But we continue to feel that shame. It becomes a bondage that traps us. Shame follows many Christians because they have never felt like they could be the kind of Christians God wants them to be and calls them to be. They try hard to do everything just right and always fall short. As a result, they never feel loved or accepted by God or maybe other people as well. We feel like we have to hide from God or from others or to put on a front. Shame is a liar, like some of these other negative emotions were. Shame says, I can't expose the way I really am to God. He will not accept me. Is that true? Is there a danger in exposing yourself to God? No. No, 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 no. God already knows. He, he wants us to, to agree with Him. God already knows. There's nothing you can shock God with. He accepts you. He absolutely loves you. He doesn't want you to hide. The opening of your heart is an act of surrender and allows us to experience closeness. Shame says, the messages, the messages I tell myself are true. I am so bad that God can't heal me. I've been there. I am so bad. You know, there's no way God can heal me. I'm broken beyond repair. So that's what shame is telling us. I'm worse than others. Things in my past are uniquely bad. No one else would do the things that I have done or am involved in. My background is, is bad. Others don't have the struggles that I do. Shame says other people will never accept a person like me. There again, our acceptance must come from God. Our value and acceptance is from God, not man. Our security in God grows. As it grows, it becomes easier for others to accept us as well. As we... When we don't surrender our shame, it shapes our worldview and our response to those around us. These are, there are consequences for that. There's a lack of self-acceptance or sense of value. A distorted view of self. Lack of forgiveness of ourselves. Quick judgment of others and ourselves. The solution to shame is like the other unhealthy emotion. It's to anchor our relationship in God. Turn our eyes toward God. Focus on God. See how He is. He he has forgiven me because of my repentance and His atonement for my sin. He accepts me. He loves me. He has forgiven me. Trust in His mercy and forgiveness. Shame is is a miserable thing in relationships. It's people live in shame and it just takes, well, I don't know how to describe it. it, it takes the joy out of a relationship. Always I feel like there's something I should be ashamed for. I, I somehow haven't been able to accept God's forgiveness of where, what I've done. God has freely forgiven you. God, you've repented of the sin. God has freely forgiven you. Bask in that. Understand that God loves you. He won't reject you. 
The last one we want to look at tonight is, is a huge one in relationship, and that is the emotion of anger. Anger is a reaction to injury. Often if you experience some kind of injury, you will experience the emotion of, of anger. I've been hurt physically, mentally, or emotionally, and I feel like lashing out. It's a reaction to injustice or mistreatment. It's a reaction to rejection. It's a reaction to opposition, loss of control. It's a reaction to unmet expectations. And the anger is a demand within me to even the score, to make somebody hear me, to meet my needs, to appreciate me, to appreciate what I do. And anger has been called, and I've done that, the curse of relationships. If you think about it, you will soon picture a relationship that is characterized by anger. Don't you? It's not a pretty scene. There's anger in a, in a person. It, 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 it's just, it's hard to deal with. Anger, angry outbursts. There's a lot of stuff flying around in the environment because of anger. There's just a lot of, of adrenaline that's happening. There's a lack of calmness. I remember as a uh, supervisor working on an aircraft hangar floor, I had a, a guy named Charlie work for me. Charlie was a really, really smart man. And uh, he worked the night shift for me. And I came in one morning to the maintenance facility and walked into the break room to put your lunchbox on and the drink machine was broken. Big old cave-in on the front of the drink machine. The front end was just all bashed in. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happened here? Nobody would talk. Eventually it all came out and somebody described to me what had happened in the middle of the night on third shift. Charlie had gone to get a drink and the machine took his money. That's irritating, right? But Charlie had a real anger problem and it displayed itself that night. Charlie walked out on the floor and all the way across the large hangar floor to his rollaway toolbox and got a big old hammer and walked back over there and just beat up that drink machine. Anger is such a powerful emotion. It just you, you kind of lose almost your your sense of control. In your life, don't you? When you're just so angry. You're seeing red as, you, as the saying goes. And what anger does is it, uh, it provides a distraction from the real issue. The issue was not a drink machine that took people's money. The issue was Charlie's anger. Anger clouds the issue. You can't think clearly when, when, you're, when you're angry. It confuses the real need. There was real need in Charlie's life, and Charlie paid for it with his job. He wouldn't talk to me about it. I said, Charlie, you won't talk to me about it. You can't work here. And he lost his job. 
Anger just 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 destroys things. You just the real need in Charlie's life was to get his anger taken care of. When Steve Tran of Westminster, California closed the door after activating 25 bug bombs, he thought he had seen the last of the cockroaches that shared his apartment. 25 bug bombs he set off in his little apartment. These little aerosol bug bombs that were going to kill his cockroaches. When the spray reached the pilot light of the stove, it ignited, blasting his screen door across the street, breaking all his windows and setting his furniture ablaze. I really wanted to kill all of them, he said. I thought if I used a lot more, it would last longer. According to the label, just two canisters of the fumigant would have solved Tran's roach problem. The blast cost over $10,000 of damage to his apartment building. And the cockroaches, Tran reported by Sunday, I saw them walking around. That's an illustration of anger. Anger just doesn't take care of the real issues and it just, just makes a big old mess. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. It robs us of energy. It stimulates negative feelings. It's a source of real guilt, is anger. Leads to resentment and bitterness. I want to stand here and tell you that anger is a choice. There's a lot of debate about that. There's a lot of debate with psychologists. Is anger a choice? It's a long-term choice. It's not maybe a short-term choice. But a life of anger is a long-term choice. The flare-up that you see may be just a surface symptom, but the, the life of anger is, is a choice. God's love must come in and displace that anger. What to do about anger? First, to recognize what it is. Don't blame others. Others are not to blame. Don't blame God. Don't blame circumstances. And recognize the danger to relationships when you're angry. It's like a fire. It's like a wild beast. It's like a rattlesnake. It's like a whole high voltage wire. It's, it's a path beside the cliff. That's probably one of the better analogies. When you're angry, you are like walking beside the cliff. Are you absolutely going to fall in? No, but you're, you may not, but you're in great, great danger. Great, great danger. And the thing I've observed with anger, we have a man that's in our community who is an angry man. And he's now an old angry man. Maybe I see some changes in his life. He has sent a message to our church recently that he wants is asking for forgiveness. But what anger is 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 a person who just is unwilling to forgive, is unwilling to to let bygones be bygones. This old man has a list of grievances. 
this long. And anytime you talk to him, he's, he, he can recount them one after another, right down over the list. And he has never, he's, God's love has just not been in his heart enough to, to displace those things. Anger is not anything to laugh at. You know, we sometimes laugh at, at an outburst, but it, it, is, it is very, very serious because it's so dangerous. And in relationships, it is a disaster. It's a disaster in relationships. It just puts a barrier between you and other people. What is the answer to to anger? And I, I can't even begin to give all the answers tonight, even if I knew them. But it is, again, to anchor ourselves in God. I must understand that the stuff that has happened to me, that hurt that I have experienced, that has brought rise to this anger, did God allow that hurt to happen to me? Think about it. Did God allow that to happen to me? Yes, He did. Yes, He did. One of the things I've begun, I've realized over my life that everything that happens to a believer is filtered through God's hand. Everything. Everything that happens to us has, has gone through God's filtering hand. He didn't do it necessarily. It is done by some evil person or some unsuspecting person or some person who didn't know what they were doing or whatever. But his hand is right there and he allowed it to happen. The sooner we can grasp the fact that God is in fact a God of love and God has allowed this to happen to me and I can accept that. That takes care of a lot of anger. Our hurts and our frustrations, we don't understand them many times, but we say, God... I don't know why, but you do. And I accept that. I accept that. I don't have to pay anybody back. I can't pay anybody back. I can't take revenge. Because God has allowed this to happen to me. All of our hurts, all of our frustrations. Another thing that really is helpful is to practice thankfulness. When we are feeling very angry, turn our eyes toward God. Look toward God and, and express gratitude for what He's done for us. And it's just like love and fear. Thankfulness and anger don't mix. You take that cup that's full of anger and you start pouring in thankfulness, just start pouring in thankfulness, start pouring in thankfulness, and that anger just rises to the top and moves and floats right off the top. Practicing thankfulness to other people, to God, and, and, and that anger will, will be moved out of there. Another thing that is very helpful is to increase our, and this is because it increases our exposure to God, and that is our prayer time. If you're struggling with anger right now, you're struggling with anger at your spouse, at someone else in the church, someone your boss at work, you're struggling with anger at one of your children, take an extra 10-15 minutes of prayer time and expose yourself to God. That is very, very helpful. And His character. And allow that, that thankfulness that you experience to God just to drain away that anger. 
Okay, to wrap this thing up, just a brief recap. I want to give you an action item. We must anchor our emotional life in a strong relationship with God. A strong relationship with God, a strong focus on God, a strong focus away from ourselves is the answer to these negative emotions that plague us, as they will. Emotional freedom comes in loving God, basking in His love. Emotional freedom comes in trusting God, knowing He has our good at heart. His provision, His forgiveness, His care. God bless you.